So because this is a sermon about history, there are footnotes. And if you want to read the footnotes, take out your device, go to my website, danielharper.org, click on sermons, and it'll pop up. <laughs> and if you don't want to read the footnotes, just sit here and relax. I'm very glad that we have an exponent of the great American musical form, jazz, uh, playing for us this morning because jazz will figure into the cultural milieu of our buildings, a product of the mid-century explosion of creative ferment. Because our congregation started in the mid-century when the Palo Alto Unitarian Society, as it was first known, began to meet in 1947, we didn't own a building. We met in rented space. After outgrowing other spaces, the congregation finally wound up in the Palo Alto Community Center. Ray Bell, who joined the congregation in 1953, later recalled, it was a three-ring circus on Sunday mornings. <laughs> The number of children in the church school grew by leaps and bounds. Classes had to be held in adjacent homes, the YMCA, the Girl Scout House, the Junior Museum, and the Harker School. The religious education teachers arrived each Sunday morning with all their supplies in one bulging box. An arts committee performed wonders with floral and art pieces to brighten up the dark children's theater where services were held. By 1955, a 16-voice adult choir squeezed into the miniature space to the side of the stage. Given these crowded conditions, the impetus to build our own home was tremendous. But how would they finance building their own home? As a new congregation, the American Unitarian Association in Boston still helped to pay their minister's salary. And where did they want their building to be? Bob Harrison, one of the earliest members of the congregation, later remembered, we soon became solvent enough to plan with Boston for a church building. Some thought we should buy the old First Presbyterian building. I was chairman of the board and moderated a long meeting in the faculty clubhouse at Stanford on the pros and cons, and we finally decided to build a new building. We then looked for sites, including one on Loma Verde, but decided on the Charleston Road site. A site at 1345 Channing Avenue was also considered, and it was even suggested that they purchase the old Unitarian Church building at the corner of Cowper and Channing from the earlier congregation that closed in 1934. But even though some people criticized the site on Charleston Road as just a cabbage field, Others pointed out the advantages of being in an area where many new homes were being built. So the congregation voted on June 27, 1954 to buy the cabbage field, for which they paid $30,060, that's about $285,000 in today's dollars. They leased the field out for farming until they figured out what they wanted to build. And Barbara Schonborn told me she remembers playing in the cabbage patch. They started off thinking small. In June 1955, a group of people proposed building two modest buildings comprising a little over 7,000 square feet at a total expenditure of 51,000. That's about a half a million in today's dollars. 
In November 1955, Richard Allen and three others submitted a more considered proposal to the board for buildings totaling over 8,000 square feet and the increased square footage was based on more careful calculations of the requirements for the Sunday school. Quote, if three sessions of church school were scheduled each Sunday, six classrooms and one children's assembly room would be sufficient for 540 children. Sunday school enrollment at that time was over 300 children and rising rapidly. Those were the days of the baby boom. The Board of Trustees also considered how the buildings would embody the values of the congregation. They wanted a building that would reflect freedom of thought and action coupled with the disciplines of a mature mind. A building that would convey a tolerance for the religious beliefs of others and recognition and retention of the good in cultures other than our own. And that would express a sense of human equality and brotherhood. There's a mid-century American word for you, brotherhood. Once they had some sense of the building they wanted to build, the next step was to choose an architect. Barb Harrison remembered how they settled on Joseph Escherich. His wife, Rowena, he says, speaking of his wife, Rowena, Rowena, Glenn Taylor, and a few others were on the committee to select an architect from the many who submitted tentative plans. Rowena was particularly pleased with Escherich, who was later selected, because he seemed more sensitive to the feelings and interests of the entire congregation. Escherich was, in fact, the perfect choice for the congregation. Mark Tribe, one of his graduate students at the University of California, Berkeley, and now emeritus professor there, has summed up Escherich's architect architecture as always being appropriate. Escherich, says Tribe, wasn't a major form giver. He wasn't a Frank Lloyd Wright. He didn't do frivolous shapes. His architecture was quieter, more about living and use than it was about flashy designs to be reproduced in the professional journals. In other words, instead of building a building that would show off his design prowess, Escherich listened attentively to his clients and built the building they wanted and needed. Escherich may be considered a regional architect who carried on the regional tradition of Julia Morgan and Bernard Maybeck. While our building is often categorized as mid-century modern, critic Lewis Mumford would have characterized it as the Bay Region style, a mid-century follow-up to Maybeck and Morgan. The vision that Escherich captured in our buildings is revealed in his original conception for the site plan which included plans for future classrooms off in that direction and a future church building out in front. His original idea shows our campus as a grid. This is in striking contrast to the typical Christian church where there is a clearly defined path from the entry point to the altar or pulpit, just as there is a clearly defined path for Christians to the ultimate goal of salvation. A building complex based on a grid offers no neatly defined path to salvation. Indeed, our campus continues to prove disorienting to first-time visitors. <laughs> That's laughter of recognition. People regularly get lost on their first visit here. 
because there is no single center, no single goal towards which our buildings aim us. The grid came to be emblematic of both mid-century architecture as well, of, uh, as well as of some visual artists such as the deeply spiritual painter Agnes Martin whose paintings are based on a subtle meditative grid. And I believe there is a connection too to the freedom that was being explored by the jazz musicians of that era as for example the spiritual jazz of the great Pharaoh Sanders. Like free jazz, a grid suggests limitless space and absence of place. A grid, then, is an excellent expression of the stated values of the congregation. Freedom of thought and action, tolerance for the religious beliefs of others, and a sense of human equality. In Escherich's design, the grid extends from the large-scale site plan to the most sensitive and subtle details. The building elevations, now in the collection of the University of California at Berkeley, show how the facades of the buildings were organized into grids. And there are the more subtle details. I'll wait for the siren to go by. Escherich extended the rafter tails into the space beyond the roof lines, as you can see out there, giving the feeling that the grid extends over those areas where there are no buildings. And the grid continues into the interiors of the buildings as well. Long linear light fixtures hung from the ceiling of the classrooms extended a subtle grid above your head while providing soft and non-directional light. Escherich recognized the seriousness of purpose of the congregation but he also understood that our congregation had a sense of humor, and there are witty touches throughout the building. In an oral history interview, Escherich remembered that the building, quote, had to be very economical, but it has lots of nice things in it. One of the things I like most about it is that the lighting in the main hall is made up of great big porcelain enamel reflector lamps. Those are the bowl lamps on either side. They're the kind of things that are used on a big high shaft for parking lot lighting. <laughs> I always look at that stuff and I think what it's going to be like upside down. <laughs> and these are all used upside down. They work wonderfully well. They give a very good quality light. Although the wittiness of the bowl lights has mostly been forgotten today, members of the congregation who were involved in the building process always remembered what the bowl lights really were, and now you know too. <laughs> the building complex was constructed in six months for a total cost of 178,000, that would be about 1.6 million in today's dollars, comprising 11,000 square feet. First Sunday service was held September 7th, 1958. Ray Bell remembered a massive all-day cleanup occurred on the previous day with wooden chairs uncrated, floors and windows washed, and rubbish removed. There was, as yet, no landscaping. Photos of the opening day show that that patio, now paved, was just bare dirt. Religious education enrollment and adult attendance continued to rise, and soon the new buildings were filled past capacity. The adults met in the main hall, which held over 200 people on uncomfortable wooden chairs. Those of you who complain about these chairs, they were much worse in the past, I am told. 
at each service, about 100 children crammed into the children's meeting hall, what we now call the fireside room, before dispersing to their classrooms. In 1964, to alleviate cramped office space, the congregation built an extension designed by Escherich to the office building. That's the building over there. Attendance peaked in the mid-1960s with three Sunday services and as many as 600 children enrolled in the Sunday school. After a few years, probably in the late 50s, early 60s, Job and Jean Jenkins donated a Madrone branch from their property in the Santa Cruz Mountains to be hung on the north wall of the main hall. This is a replacement, it's not the original. By deciding to hang this Madrone branch on this wall behind me, the congregation gave a firm and definite orient orientation to this room. Now it feels a little more like a traditional Christian church with an axial orientation from the entry point to the pulpit. This is but one instance of the congregation resisting the radical openness of the grid. The uncertainty and openness of the grid plan often proved a little too uncomfortable. By 1966, our congregation began to think about building a church building at the front of the lot, out towards Charleston Road from here. But the congregation had changed since 1958. Many people were no longer satisfied with the simple rectangular building that was shown on the original site plan, and deep divisions within the congregation became apparent as they tried to decide what kind of church building they wanted. Differing opinions about the war in Vietnam exemplify the deeper divisions within the congregation. The senior minister, Dan Lyon, and some congregants opposed the war. Other congregants supported the war. In June 1967, the church newsletter carried a letter from church member George Price saying, our government is dedicated to peace. Peace in Vietnam is its primary goal there. I support my government. Ed and Celia Freiberg responded with their own letter in August 1967 with the barbed criticism that there are well-meaning members of our congregation who want us to assume the white man's burden abroad. In addition to open division over social issues, there was also hidden interpersonal conflict. Lay leaders and the senior minister, Dan Lyon, were increasingly in conflict. Not surprisingly then, there was also conflict around the proposed building project. Joseph Escherich was retained to design the new building. In a letter to the board president dated February 1968, he quoted one of the stated desires of the congregation for a building with, quote, the speaker speaking from within the community an inter-dialogue rather than a neutral setting or the traditional authoritarian setting. To Escherich, that suggested, quote, a radically different form from the existing buildings with a face-to-face -face entrance with both the congregation and minister coming essentially from the same side and as it were from the same place and meeting confronting one another in a single common space. The ideals represented by the grid, freedom, tolerance of others' beliefs, human equality, were no longer at the forefront of people's minds. 
What I hear instead is a desire to manage conflict, conflict that existed throughout American society in those days. Perhaps a new building could be a container for productive conflict for what they called, in those days, inter-dialogue. George Price estimated the new building would cost $374,000. That's about two and three quarters million in today's dollars. In an open letter, Arthur Kaufman, a self-proclaimed member of the loyal opposition, argued, at this time in the history of our nation and our church, there are to me options with higher priorities than our own creature comforts at a cost of some $300,000. Assistant Minister Mike Young tried to further the discussion by asking, the new building, though it will open up some new programming possibilities, will tend to commit us to become a big church with all that means in terms of potential resources, but also in terms of a diminished sense of being a community. But with all the discussion, no congregational consensus emerged. A congregational meeting was called in May 1968 to affirm or reject the notion that it is the sense of this congregation that the Palo Alto Unitarian Church build a new auditorium substantially like the one designed by Escherich and Associates. 100 of the congregation's members voted no, while only 66 voted yes. Board President George Price called the majority no vote a mandate to develop leadership and programs in the field of human rights. The money raised during the capital campaign was then donated to various charitable organizations. Why did the congregation make this decision? Clearly, unresolved conflict between the ministers and the lay leaders helped prevent productive discussion, as did conflicts between members of the congregation over Vietnam and a host of other social issues. Additionally, based on comments made by those who were part of the congregation at that time, there were probably some who voted no because they thought the new design was ugly or inappropriate to the congregation. The consensus building process that had been followed in 1958 was no longer possible in 1968. Well, the next half of our building's history, next half century of our building's history will have to be the subject of another sermon. But what I, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I feel like uh, Paul Harvey. And now the rest of the story. But what I'd like to do right now is take a moment to reflect on how our building complex continues to make us feel uncomfortable. And if you feel uncomfortable with this topic, feel free to watch the children set up the waffles for after the service. Our congregation still feels a tension between the desire for openness and the desire for some degree of certainty. It may make us uncomfortable knowing that the Madrone branch hangs exactly where a cross would hang in a traditional Christian church, but it makes us more uncomfortable to change the orientation of the main hall. When Amy and I experimented in 2009-2010 by orienting the chairs toward the west wall, there were many people who were disturbed and upset. We still prefer the certainty of knowing which direction we should face, and we still make large and small decisions to try to tame the radical openness of our grid campus. Our discomfort with uncertainty means 
we do not find it easy to deal with opposing viewpoints. For example, this congregation has less theological diversity than any other Unitarian Universalist congregation I've been a part of. We are dominated by atheists and humanists and non-theists. We have no pagan circle, no Christian fellowship, no Jewish roots group. In another example, we lack political diversity, or apparently lack political diversity. Speaking as a radical leftist, I'm an example of diversity. But everybody else seems to belong to the Democratic Party. <laughs> Sometimes it seems to me this congregation clings to unexamined certainties embodied by atheism and the Democratic Party the way some fundamentalist Christian churches still cling to their King James Bibles. Our desire for certainty conflicts with our visually stimulating and deeply unsettling buildings. The theological image that our building embodies for me is the image of the web of all existence, which includes all living organisms and all non-organic matter. The web of existence has no center. Human beings are not the center of the web of existence. We are merely one no node in the web. A subset of the web of existence is the web of all humanity. And privileged college-educated Americans are not at the center of all humanity. Here again, there is no center. So what happens if we decenter ourselves, recognizing our limitations as fallible and finite beings? We live in a world facing global environmental disaster, a world faced with mass movements of refugees. To live ethically, we must confront the reality that college-educated American human beings are not the center of the universe, that humans are not the center of the web of existence. In a Christian church, you know where God is. Follow the straight line path that begins at the front door and ends at the cross hanging on the far wall. I'm oversimplifying here. My Quaker Christian friends would take great issue with this, but you get the point. Our building complex has no center. That means God is either everywhere or nowhere, or rather is both everywhere and nowhere. Both atheism and theism are valid options for structuring human meaning. In our church, there is no one center, and thus on Sunday morning, there will be many centers of activity. You can attend the Sunday services. You can participate in forum. You can help prepare lunch or waffles in the kitchen. You can be a part of a class or play on the playground or join our bias-free navigator scouting group in the covered patio. Each is a valid pathway towards spiritual growth and maturity. However, I believe our congregation as a whole, not referring to specific individuals, everybody here is fine, but our congregation as a whole, <laughs> still lacks the spiritual maturity to fully embrace the implications of our building complex. We resist uncertainty. We resist being decentered. As a white man, I resist being decentered all the time. We cling to our self-importance because we are steeped in the hyper-individualism of our consumerist, information-driven society. We still believe freedom means 
I get to believe and do whatever I want. Our building complex confronts us with a higher ideal. We are not isolated individuals who can believe whatever we want. We are a part of the web of all existence. Our building complex tends to shape us toward growth in spiritual maturity so that we can stop pretending to be at the center of the universe, to stop pretending that you can demand certainty. And I'll leave you with this question. Will we allow ourselves to be so shaped?